this is Pippa from the Daybreak Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in to this bonus episode. So before we get started, I just wanted to mention that if you are a new listener, this may not be the best place for you to start. Um, if you want to start with a bonus episode, this is going to just be an interview with Dr. Toby Campbell and O.T. Haley Manley, um, with Bryn Campbell and me interviewing them on Facebook Live, which was really cool, and I learned so much. So, um, I was, But I would suggest if you are a new listener that you should listen to a previous episode or the episode that f- was before this one so you can get a bit more context. But if you just want to listen to an interview, you are in the right place. And also, if you were just listening to our previous episode before this one, this is a good place for you to be. Also, I'm glad you made it. Um, <laughs> and you should start at about 20 minutes, 21 minutes through the interview to make sure that you get the right spot because that's where about where I cut it off um, when you were listening to the previous episode. Okay. Um, before we start the show, also, I just have one more thing to say. If you want to watch this interview, um, as it sort of played out live, then I have a link in the show notes for you. Um, it says, Facebook Live Interview Here, and then click on that, and you'll be able to watch the interview. Okay, now let's get on with the show. Administrator, and this is Bryn Campbell. Welcome to the Daybreak Live Interview. Thank you all for attending. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Toby Campbell and occupational therapist Haley Manley. This interview is special since all of you listeners will ask the questions. The first, okay, let's get started with some more questions by asked by us, then we'll open the floor up to some of your questions. <laughs> okay. So for our first question, Haley, I know that you just started working. So Dr. Toby, how is a regular day during this pandemic different from a regular day um, without COVID-19? That is a great question. You know, it is so different and it is different in many ways, but the most obvious difference is that there are relatively fewer people coming to the hospital. So the parking lot is empty. And the cafeteria is empty because um, just people who work there and patients are there. When I go to see a patient in the clinic, they're by themselves, whereas normally they have family members with them. So that's the thing that I notice the most is the lack of people visiting. And it's really hard actually on patients and families as well, because families want to be there visiting when their loved one has mm. something serious going on, but they're unable to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Haley, tell us what your job is like and how it relates to COVID-19. Yeah, so I'm an occupational therapist. Um, A lot of people don't know what OTs do. I like to Mm -hmm. describe it as kind of a cousin to physical therapy, um, but looking at occupations as our daily activities. So I work in an acute care setting in the hospital, so really looking at making sure that patients are able to be as independent and safe as possible in their daily activities of living. So getting up and down from your toilet, being able to take a shower, getting dressed, those types of things. Hmm, interesting. Um, Um, How do you, how do both of you balance your outside life and your work life? Do you wanna take that one? Sure. Well, this is my first full-time job, so that's very exciting. And while I'm working full-time for the first time, it's 
it's kind of different because I don't have homework and other jobs. So it's actually been kind of nice. I feel like I have more free time. So I've been able to spend a lot of time with my family. Walks. <laughs> Not much else to do currently. Um, but it's been good. You know, for me, Bryn, family time has been good in a way that is strange because lots of your activities and your sister and your brother's activities have either been canceled or changed. And what that has meant is that we are much more likely to have dinner as a family together at home in the evening. We're much more likely to go for a walk after dinner. Um, so family time is even more important than ever before just because of the added strain and stress of this whole pandemic. And I think um, those are some of the things that I've noticed. Mm. Yeah. That is awesome. So what is a misconception of COVID-19 um, that you want to clear up? I think perhaps the most common misconception that people have is that if they get it, it's going to be terrible and they're going to die. Um, we know that most people who develop infection with COVID-19 actually are fine. Or maybe they're so fine they don't even know that they had it. And that's most people. So I want to reassure everyone that um, if you were to develop this infection, most likely you'll be fine. Most likely the people that you love will be fine. Some people have um, symptoms and it's scary and only a small percentage of people get really sick or die. Um, and some people, <laughs> some people do get really sick and some people die, but most people are fine. That's, I think, the biggest misconception I see. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, I know a lot of us probably are wondering this. What does COVID-19 stand for? Oh. Why is it called COVID-19? Okay, so this virus has a few different names. It is a coronavirus. That's the molecular structure of the virus itself. It's a ball with a bunch of spikes on the outside called a coronavirus. So the CO in COVID-19 comes from Corona. Okay. Um, the V is virus and the 19 is because in the year 2019 is when this virus developed. That was when we first noticed it. It has another name too, which is SARS-CoV-2, which sometimes you will see. So you'll sometimes see people refer to it as just coronavirus and sometimes um, COVID-19 and sometimes SARS-CoV-2. All of those names are, um, in this case, synonymous with this particular disease that's causing this pandemic. How does um, SARS-CoV-2 have to do with coronavirus also? I'm kind of, I've, I haven't heard that one yet, so that, that's kind of interesting. Well, so you may have heard of other um, viral outbreaks called SARS or MERS. Mm -hmm. These are just um, other ways that World Health, the World Health Organization and other organizations describe the illness. So it's just as if, I guess, um, you know, you, Pippa, have your name, that's your regular name, and you might have a nickname that people call you at school, and maybe your mom and dad even have a nickname for you. They're all talking about you, but just different nicknames. And so in different yeah. circumstances, people use different names for the same thing. Okay. So now we're going to open the floor for some listener questions. So if anyone has questions, you can comment them in the chat box on the side. So it looks like our first question is from John Schrader, and um, he's asking, 
In this time of COVID-19, what is the largest challenge you both face in the work you do? I think for me, so I'm going into patients' rooms that are having physical ailments or illnesses. Mm -hmm. and I think it's a spooky time to be in the hospital as well. I am coming in with a face mask and a face shield and people can't have the visitors and family members that they usually have in the hospital. So I think we're seeing an increase in um, challenges with our mental health as well um, as that correlates with our physical health while we're in mm -hmm. the hospital. So being able to address both of those things while trying to get people out of the hospital as soon as possible has been Fairly challenging. For me, Bryn, the hardest part, and John, the hardest part is taking care of people who can't be in the same room with their family because visitation is restricted as well as Haley was just saying. So I take care of people who are seriously ill, something is really wrong, and sometimes they are dying, not actually usually from COVID, but from just normal things like cancer or other things that threaten people's lives. And it's really hard when they can't have visitors. I. Um, on my way home today before this interview, I was talking with a family on the phone who would really like to be in the room with their loved one and we would have been talking face to face, but we couldn't. And so I talked to them on the phone. Earlier today, I was meeting with a young patient of mine whose room happens to look out on the parking garage. And so her family drove uh, from uh, Illinois where they live to, uh, and they drove up to the top of the parking ramp and they got out of their car and they were waving and she was in her room waving back. And it was, you know, heartwarming, but also heartbreaking that they um, couldn't be like together in the same room. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like Cassidy Bailey is asking, should someone avoid the hospital if they're feeling ill? No, you should go to the hospital if you're feeling sick. Actually, the hospital, to be honest, is a pretty safe place. They're doing lots and lots of things, regardless of what hospital you're going to, they're doing things to try to let COVID into the hospital, people with COVID into the hospital in a controlled way, meaning we know when they have it so that we can do the things we need to do to protect everyone from catching it. Um, but they're cleaning surfaces and everybody's got masks. And actually it's a pretty overall safe place to be. And definitely if you're feeling sick, uh, you should go to the hospital. Yeah, as well as cleaning surfaces and doing stuff with ma or, and using masks, what else are you doing with the hospital? or trying to keep it safe. What are we yes. doing at the hospital instead for ourselves? Yeah, even as employees, whenever we enter the building, we have to be wearing a mask to enter the building and they're asking us screening questions to make sure we're self-monitoring for symptoms. And they just started actually taking our temperature every time we go into the hospital. So they're making sure that we're as safe as possible. So we aren't getting sick, but also spreading that sickness to our patients. Yes, yes. Okay, um, so next question. Looks like Samantha Johnson is asking, many healthcare workers are choosing to wear head covers. Does COVID-19 live on your hair? Hmm. You know, that is the first time I've been asked that specific question. So let me just generalize to say this virus can survive on surfaces and your hair is a surface. So I would imagine that if, a, if, you know, if someone who was effect, infected with COVID-19 coughed on you, for example, and got it on your hair, they would have to do something like that. They would literally have to like cough on you and get it on your hair. So probably um, that's really unlikely to happen, but I suppose it could survive for a short period of time. We know that the sun um, is quite quickly lethal to virus on surfaces. So probably if you were to 
you know, even walk out to the car and have even just a minute of sun on your head would probably kill the virus. So I suppose it's theoretically possible, but highly unlikely that you would have virus on your hair. Mm -hmm. We were actually suggested not to wear head coverings um, at our hospital because one of the most likely chances of getting that infection is when you're taking off your PPE or doffing your PPE. And that's another thing that you have to take off so you can transmit it to yourself as well. So we were actually recommended not to, but those recommendations are changing every day. <laughs> Yeah, so um, Kathy Manley, along with that, is asking, are you seeing any shortage, uh, short, shortage, shortages of PPE in your facilities? Yeah, let me extend just slightly, because what Haley was saying is really important, that there's two things you're doing when you're protecting yourself. You're putting on protective gear, and then you're taking it off. And it's the taking mm -hmm. off, actually, that's harder. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, we have plenty right now of protective equipment. We are um, doing the things that we're supposed to do with reusing them in safe ways, re-sterilizing them so that they can be reused. So right now at our local hospital, we have enough equipment um, and we're doing things to make sure that it lasts for much longer than it might otherwise last. Um, there are, that may not be the case at other hospitals for sure because the equipment overall has been limited, but everybody is trying to make it last. I may not have answered the question, but. Okay, um, next question. Um, Tom Lafayette is asking, <laughs> Dr. Toby Campbell, have you been cutting your own hair? Oh, <laughs> you know, this is uh, one of the things that sometimes you have to do when you have too much hair, you need less of it. So yeah, I wonder what, I wonder what you all could make a comment about what you think, uh, <laughs> a self haircut. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, Ginger Schrader is asking, what temperature reading would be considered a red alert when you enter the hospital? So a fever. Um, for most definitions, a fever is anything higher than 100.3 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.3 degrees Celsius. Okay. Okay. Um, so Amber Lifelight is asking, what kind of protective gear do you have and do you have enough of it? This was sort of already asked, but. Yeah, I guess I would extend it to say that you get fitted for these protective masks. You have to go and um, try on different ones and see which ones actually protect you appropriately. So everybody looks a little different because there actually are a number of different um, types of equipment and they fit different body shapes and body sizes. So you might see people with a full-on hood and a respirator thing. You might see people with different kinds of masks. So yeah, there actually are a variety of different um, pieces of equipment, barrier protection devices. And so people look different. They don't all look the same. And regardless if somebody is actually testing positive for COVID-19, we are using PPE for all of our patients in the hospital. So I, every room I go into, I have that face mask and face shield on, and that's not only to protect them, but also to protect me. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like Cassidy Bailey is also asking, what types of things should we be doing at home to stay as healthy as possible? What about that one? Sharesies. What's that? Sharesies. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a big part of that is maintaining our physical health, but also maintaining our mental health. 
Um, so taking the time for self-care is what we like to do and what we enjoy to do, um, as well as making sure we're trying to get some exercise, eat as healthy as we can, all those basics as well. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. And specific to the virus, um, it's about your hands. So keeping your hands clean. Um, I, you've seen me adjust my glasses and itch my eye, just wash my hands right before sitting down. So I feel good about that. But I actually am really intentional about washing my hands prior to touching my face. So if you can do those things, I think you are doing what you can to keep yourself safe. The a policy approaches where, you know, for the governor, for example, asking you to stay home in your state or local officials asking you to stay home in your state is really just a fairly blunt tool to try to diminish the spread of the virus. It's blunt because it's not specific at all, right? It affects everyone. Ideally, you would just have the people who had the virus stay home. The problem is we don't know who has it and who doesn't because so many people are asymptomatic and we haven't to this point had enough testing to test lots and lots of people. So we don't have a great sense of who has it and who doesn't. And that's why all of us have had to stay home. But I think that is another thing that we are doing to keep yourself safe, which is to, you know, all these measures that you're taking, staying six feet away from people and wearing a mask. And those are also important. Okay. Um, Hadley Johnson wants to know if she should be scared of people wearing masks. No, you don't need to be scared of people wearing masks. Everybody really is gonna be wearing masks in public and when they're in groups of people for honestly for a long time, probably, I don't know, I'm gonna guess, probably a year. Hmm. Okay, sounds good. So Colleen Johnson is also asking, what are some ways we can support healthcare workers like yourselves? Well, actually just some of the things that happen on, so I walk to work and I pass signs mm -hmm. that say, thank you healthcare workers or things like that. I pass chalk drawings that say things like that <laughs> yeah. and I notice them and it does make me feel good and it's really nice. Um, Colleen Johnson, the person asking this question has actually taken additional steps. She has sent Girl Scout cookies to the hospital and I can tell you that Little things like that make a great deal of difference too. I think perhaps the greatest thing you could do is, is the expression of gratitude, whether that is through a little sign or through just a small gesture. I don't think it needs to be any grand gesture. Um, I think that it makes us all feel like people notice that we're putting ourselves to a degree in harm's way. Um, and, and yeah, for me, that's what, that's what I would say. Okay, Kathy Manley is asking, do healthcare workers have access to testing for COVID, both themselves and patients? Yes, um, employees at UW have been able to receive test results fairly quickly as well. And I think right now, all of our patients who are admitted are either receiving tests if they're undergoing procedures or surgeries, um, and those are actually being turned over pretty quickly. So we'll know within a couple of hours if they're testing negative or positive. Yeah, lately we have a lot more testing, agreed. Um, more than 2,000 UW Health, where we work, employees have been tested. Um, the last number that I heard, which was late last week, was that 47 had tested positive. None of them had, to the best of our knowledge, um, Con contracted the disease from their patients, meaning that the disease was transmitted out in the community. 
which also means that we're doing a good job with the protective equipment, that transmission from patient to doctor or healthcare provider is not happening. Um, and both for, yeah, so yes, lots of tests. And okay, so here's another thing you're gonna to start to see. There are tests to um, ask the question, do you currently have the infection? Then there's a separate set of tests that are gonna be called antibody tests that you'll start seeing more and more about these because there were recently some tests that were FDA approved. These are seeking to ask the question, have you had the infection in the past? They're quite different tests. The test that says, do you have it now? is very accurate. It's very rarely incorrect. These antibody tests are variable. Some of them are quite good. Some of them are not great. Um, the, when they're not great, they give you what's called a false positive, meaning they say you've had the infection, but you haven't actually. It might be getting a false positive because you've had another kind of coronavirus infection and that's what's, um, those antibodies are in your blood and that's what the test is, is detecting. So these tests are new and the whole world really is still learning about how reliable they are. Um, but UW Health started testing or offering antibody testing to employees to try to get a sense of who maybe has had the infection. Um, and they did a lot of homework to pick the best test, the one that's the most accurate. But even then, there's some uncertainty around how many false positives there might be. Mm -hmm. So Carrie Johnson would like to know if there's truly a 30% false negative rate in the testing. Also, how long it would it take you to get a test result, sort of like the way you're talking about? Um, the turnaround on the antibody test, I'm not sure. I It's not, to my knowledge, hours, like the test about whether or not you have the infection. I think it is something like a day, although you might expect this to change and change rapidly. Um, false negatives are important, but less important than false positives, because if, you, if, you're, if you're told you're negative, meaning you haven't had the infection, but you actually have had it, you're still going to be protecting yourself and doing all those things. You won't have a false sense of security. The, the test that is the problem is a false positive, because a person may think, oh, I'm protected. I've had the infection already. So it's the false positive that people are paying attention to because that's the one that can maybe get you into trouble. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's we have some questions from people who weren't here um, as much because um, they weren't able to make it. So Bryn, do you want to start with the first question on that list? Yeah, sure. So um, the first question was, Ginger Schrader asking, do you think the kids will be able to go back to school in the fall? I sure hope so. I don't think anyone knows the answer. I think the crystal ball on what's going to be happening in the fall is still too cloudy to have any certainty, but I sure hope so. I hope so too. <laughs> um, so Jason Arnett asks, what are your biggest concerns right now during this pandemic? And have you experienced anything positive as a result of this time? I think positive, we're all having a lot of self-reflection time, which can be negative in some cases, um, but a lot of time to do some of the things we might not have been doing in our crazy busy lives as well. Mm -hmm. I think there've been a lot of positives um, to mix in with the stress, but some for me, some of the positives are um, the very rapid, um, 
implementation and development of technolo technological solutions to seeing patients. So there's been just an explosion of video conferencing patients and doctors. So I'm able to see people who would have just a few weeks ago had to drive two or three hours to come to the clinic to see me. And now I'm seeing them at home and they haven't had to drive anywhere. Um, and we're talking over a video conference. So that's just one example of some of the, um, one of the good things that I think, that I hope we keep um, as we move forward. Okay, um, our next question, John Schrader asked, any thoughts on how much longer you think we'll be, we'll continue to social distance? Is it too hard to tell yet? Or is it only when we will have had vaccine or herd immunity? I think that um, being careful is here to stay for a while. If you think about the flu, which comes around every year, if we were doing all the things that we're doing right now during flu season, very few people would get the flu because yeah. we would shut down flu transmission. So there's nothing inherently wrong with being careful. Um, and I think that will be here to stay for some time. When will we be protected enough from the virus is hard, hard to know. Will a vaccine arrive? that's effective. Um, I hope so, but I don't know. Um, so here, I think, John, the answer is too uncertain for me to really tell you. And I think you might expect that the social distancing and being careful, not to say that we have to not do anything and not leave our house. I think house, I think that shelter in place will end in the coming few weeks. But I think the idea that we'll need to continue to be careful um, will continue. Mm-hmm. So um, just a few more questions. Um, so have either Toby or Haley had the antibody test yet? No. No. You know, so they just told us on either Thursday, maybe, I think that it was available and they offered it, but you had to make an appointment. And then they sent out an email that over a thousand people had requested testing and they had to stop taking requests for a little while until they caught up. So. Um, I haven't, Haley hasn't, but lots of people are getting tested. Okay, um, Samantha Johnson would like to know, Haley, do you think that COVID-19 will affect your career as an occupational therapist long-term? I think so. Um, like Toby was saying, we can't really see into the crystal ball. I think this is a very interesting, informative time to be starting a healthcare <laughs> career, to say the least. So I do think a lot of this will kind of carry me through into my career. Um, some of the things I think just being more cautious with these types of things will carry over in the years to come, especially across like all OTs and PTs. Um, just looking specifically right now, we're already seeing some patients coming into the hospital who maybe are presenting with more weakness because they're not able to get out and do their daily activities that they're usually doing because of this COVID-19. Um, so I do think that we could see a shift in our patient population as well in the next coming months and or years. Wow, yeah. So back to um, some of our questions for people who weren't able to get here. So um, let's see, um, Therese Kachuk asks, if a test successfully shows you have antibodies to the virus, can you still catch the virus? There's a lot in the news about antibody testing not being reliable. How will people know if they're getting reliable results? 
So I think that's hard to know right now. As time goes along, I think you will have the ability to be increasingly sure of what that test means. Um, a lot of tests have been released from different companies in different places. Some are, you know, testing more reliable and some less. Um, I think the, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the decision of what test they're using is a decision that a healthcare system is making. It's not a decision that an individual patient has access to. So I think if you're going to a healthcare system, your healthcare system, and you trust that healthcare system, it's a fair question to ask them. I also think we'll know a lot more really pretty quickly. Cause I mean, as I just told you, a thousand UW health employees have already signed up for testing. So just actually testing people is gonna help increase the knowledge about how reliable these results are. So I think this will evolve quickly over the coming few days and weeks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, Sam Johnson would like to know, do you have specific units dedicated to COVID patients at your hospital? Yes, we do. <laughs> um, I actually am mainly working at a smaller hospital and we had a unit already and prepared to take in an influx of COVID patients. And recently, just last week, they ended up taking that unit down because we weren't seeing that big spike of patients that they were prepared for. It's better to be over-prepared than under-prepared. Um, but at the larger hospital downtown, there are specific units that are housing the COVID patients currently. Yeah. So patients with COVID need to get care, right? So it's important that we let them into the hospital when they need help. Um, what we want to do is make sure that there are barriers between COVID positive patients and non-COVID positive patients to diminish any, diminish any chance that there could be spread. And so, yes, in the hospital, there are units that are dedicated to COVID. So all the staff know that they are taking care of COVID positive patients and we're doing all the things we need to do in the clinic. Um, depending upon what clinic it is, there are COVID positive areas. So both in the outpatient setting and the inpatient setting, there are pretty clear lines between COVID and not COVID, just to try to keep everybody safe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Ruby Pizig asks, what is the advantage of being tested? Uh, if I am tested and find out that I'm not infected, won't the changes of me being infected start again as soon as I leave the office? Right, the chances never go away. Um, the test definitely doesn't protect you from getting COVID. So that's right, it's just personal knowledge, I think. Um, at, a health, at a public health level, if at some point we knew that 60% of the United States population or 60% of the people living in Wisconsin had had exposure, that becomes relevant information for a public health official. And I think really the main reason to get tested is actually probably not about you individually, but actually for public health information. So at UW Health as a hospital system, if they know that you know, 60% of their staff has been exposed and developed antibodies, that's relevant information to them. As an individual, I think it's a little less relevant. You don't, you can't be 100% certain that it's a, not a false positive test, for example. So um, I think it's helpful at a, at a macro, at a nationwide and at a system level. Okay. Um, Michelle Storm would like to ask, how do you feel the pandemic is being handled worldwide? They're in South Africa and in a strict lockdown. Welcome to the Facebook Live 
uh, podcast from South Africa. Wow. Um, I didn't know Facebook went all over the world. I did, I did know that. Um, so I think that we as a global community face a real threat from this virus. And I think that right now, all public health systems around the world are using a fairly crude instrument, which is telling people not to go out. That's the only and most effective tool that the public health workers have to stop the spread of the virus. It works, right? We are seeing rates slow down. We are seeing the curve flatten and we're seeing that happen all over the world. And that's in response to telling people to not go out. But that has consequences, right? I mean, economies are faltering, people are struggling. And so it's not a solution that works long-term. It was a, it was a, an approach to a crisis um, and it's clearly working. So it's just that it's not something that will work forever. So as a public health strategy, we need to come up with more tailored focused interventions that keep COVID and non-COVID people apart to minimize transmission. And that's the future. Um, of being careful, but also, um, you know, you may have heard terms like contact tracing and things like that, where we try to isolate people with COVID um, to mini minimize transmission so that people can get back to life. Yeah. It's like we don't really need a crystal ball to tell that future there, but it does that, that, that will be really great once we are able to um, make sure to minimize contact and separate people who do have COVID and, you know, make it, make it better for everybody. So, Allison Espeseth asks, are they getting any chance to rest? Are you guys getting any chance to rest? Yes. <laughs> I think we've been both doing a decent job of work-life balance. Um, yeah. You know, we here in Madison, Wisconsin, um, have had a very manageable number of COVID-positive patients, actually. Um, the governor instituted a stay-at-home order that was early enough that forestalled really the terrible situations that we've seen in, for example, New York City or in Italy or Spain, France, many other places around the world. Mm -hmm. So here locally, um, we have been under control, to be honest, the whole time. I initially had trouble sleeping just because I was worried about what was going to happen. I was worried about my team, but that has settled down as kind of it's become clear that um, here locally, we are not going to get overwhelmed. Okay. Um, Sam Johnson would like to know, are infants born to COVID positive mothers always COVID positive? I don't know the answer to that, actually. That is a fair question, uh, but one, I actually have no idea what the answer is. Interesting. Yeah. Sorry, we can't help. <laughs> So um, if no one else really has any other questions on the chat, I think maybe it's time to wrap this up. That was, I really learned a lot more. Um, and yeah. yeah, that was really cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, thank you everyone who attended. This is really good for our podcast. Yeah, so speaking of the podcast, um, I'll try and put a comment in um, the little live section when I end the podcast or when I end the um, live stream so that everybody can find the podcast um, webpage and then they can check that on Wednesday when our podcast with this interview and your lovely questions come out. So hopefully um, that will work. And for any other words? Um, 
yeah, I just thank you again, everyone. Those are really good questions. I learned a lot. So, yeah. I did too. Thank you again to Haley. Thanks to Hippa and Bryn. I know you've been spending a lot of hours and time and focus preparing. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm happy to. I'm happy to do it. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys both. Um, and Bryn, thank you. And all listeners who are watching this. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and end it now. Uh, let me see how to end the meeting. Okay, there we are. <laughs> Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview, and this is the end of this bonus episode. So make sure to tune in next week for another episode of Daybreak. And again, thank you to our two interviews for that um ot Haley manley and dr toby campbell and debrin campbell for being my opposite interviewer okay have a great day and pippa signing off mm -hmm.